Luke chapter 2, we're going to begin there in verse 1 and read what is probably the most familiar portion of the gospel of Luke. As we come to this time of year, we're used to hearing these particular verses. And, and the danger for us in that is that this uh, can grow mundane for us. We can take for granted the greatness of what God did when he stepped off the throne of heaven and stepped into the womb of a teenage girl and was born not in a castle where kings ought to be born, but instead was born in a stable, most likely a cave, and laid not in a crib with nice bedding, but instead the only place to lay him was in the animal's feeding trough. I dare say that for many of us, we come to this time of year and we, we set up on the mantle our, our manger scenes. I doubt that many of us would set those up if our scenes were equivalent to the scene on that first Christmas night. We have so overly romanticized the Christmas story, and yet God shows us it was rough. It was ugly. It was lonely. It was smelly. But it was God's way of saving us. As we continue to look at the story of Jesus this morning, let's look at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. If you're able to stand in honor of God's word, would you do so as we share these familiar verses together. Luke writes, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up, from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of, Mary, of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's be seated today. Father, as we explore today these familiar words from your holy word, may you give us fresh eyes and fresh ears. Renew our hearts in the wonder 
of what took place. That this is not in any way the way that we would have chosen things to be when the king of the universe became a man. But by your divine and sovereign plan, this was exactly what you desired. Nothing more and nothing less. Lord, help us to see this morning that's set before us in your word are two kings. And we will most certainly with our lives serve one or the other. May we leave this place afresh and anew desiring to serve the king of glory who stepped out of heaven and stepped into our existence in poverty and squalor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Entitled today's message, The Tale of Two Kings, as we see Luke lays out for us uh, a comparison between the king of the then known world, the Roman Empire, this one known as Caesar Augustus, and then as we'll see a little bit later, he begins to talk about who the real king is. And the ways of Caesar and the ways of Christ are so radically different and so radically opposed to one another that what I believe Luke is doing is he is setting before us a choice that all of us must make. We will either find ourselves as the subjects of Caesar or as the servants of Christ. And I want to encourage you in that way today. But it all begins as the king of the then known world, this one known as Caesar Augustus, makes a decree. And when Caesar made a decree, if Caesar said, jump, you asked immediately how high, and you kept jumping until he said, stop. That's just the way that things rolled in the days of the Caesars, in the days of these Roman kings that took the title of Caesar. This particular one, Caesar Augustus, was the great nephew of a more familiar Caesar that we know as Julius Caesar, who conquered all of the then known world and, and, and consumed it under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. And this one who was originally known as Octavian, who was his great nephew, who would then take on himself the term Augustus, which means holy one or revered one. You can tell he was obviously a man of great humility to take that title upon himself. But this one who had been a part of bringing about what was known as the Pax Romana or the, the Roman peace, for 30 years or so at this point in history, there had been no war in the Roman Empire. No one would raise their fist against the Romans. No one would even dare speak against the Romans because the Romans had consistently crushed everyone that had stood in their path. There were no enemies for the Roman Empire in those days. And in fact, we know from history... That the Roman Empire did not end like so many other empires when a more powerful person or a more powerful people rose up against them. Instead, the Roman Empire crumbled from the inside out. But we find here in this day, this Caesar, this king ruling over the world and calling for an accounting of his people. There were two reasons for a registration like this in those days. 
In fact, historians will tell us that it was common for about every 14 years or so, they would have a census. They would have one of these registrations. And the purpose was twofold. First of all, we want to count the people so that we'll know how much taxes we ought to be getting from various reasons, from various regions. It was a way of counting the people for taxation purposes, but it was also a way of counting the people for military purposes. We need to know how many able-bodied men that we have in case an enemy does arise, we'll know how big our army will be. Ultimately, Caesar desired to count his people to show his own greatness, his own power, his own authority. And so he commands them, go to the town of your ancestry. Wherever your people are from, return there and be counted, be registered. I know in this county, many, many are are multi-generational Breckenridge Countyans. You you can trace your ancestry back many, many generations. You're not like me, a a transplant to this area. I would have to go back to Clark County in order to register in in a similar way. But we, we find here this lowly couple, Joseph and Mary, now caught up. She's eight months plus pregnant, caught up in uh, the whim of this worldly King Caesar as they must now make what would have been a 90-mile journey from, from Nazareth in the north down to Bethlehem. But you'll notice in the text, it says, Joseph went up from Galilee. The reason that it says that he went up is because Jerusalem was very high in comparison with Nazareth in terms of its its, its relation to sea level. To go uh, to Jerusalem meant you had to basically climb a mountain. It was a very arduous journey. I'll show you on the map what it it looked like for them to make this particular journey. From Nazareth there in the north, they would go uh, around Samaria because nobody went through Samaria except for Jesus would many years later. But they would go out around Samaria and they would follow the rivers down to the Sea of Galilee and they would make a, a sharp right as they went toward Jerusalem. And then a little bit farther from Jerusalem, uh, just about 10 miles outside of Jerusalem, was this little town called Bethlehem, an out-of-the-way place. No, no one thought much of it. It's kind of like a McQuady, if you will. There wasn't much to do with Bethlehem. We wouldn't even know about Bethlehem, likely, if it hadn't been that Jesus was born there. But I want you to think about the comparison that Luke is drawing here. This worldly, powerful King Caesar says, everyone is going to do my bidding. You're going to go to your ancestral home, and you're going to be registered. And Caesar is under every idea that he is in complete control. But you see, God was doing something in this moment. He was using Caesar as a pawn in his eternal plan to rescue people by his grace and for his glory. So we begin, let's look at verses 1 through 7. It begins with the decree of an earthly king. And his decree is go and be registered. You'll notice in those first five verses, this registration is mentioned four times. Go and be registered, Caesar says. And so everyone did exactly what Caesar said because you don't speak against Caesar. When Caesar says jump, you say how high. And so that's exactly what happened. They go to be registered. They make that arduous 90-mile journey. You can imagine today if we were to set out together and we were to start heading south, 
and we were to go through Caneyville, and we were to follow I-65 and make our way, uh, continuing to go south all the way down to Franklin, Kentucky, right there at the border as you go into Tennessee. And then we were to go a little farther into a little city in the north part of Tennessee called Portland. That would be equivalent to the journey that they made. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Well, I mean, we could drive there in an hour a little more. But you couldn't walk there in that time. This was the journey of a week. And this woman is eight months pregnant. And I know we romanticize the picture with Joseph leading her on a colt. The Bible never mentions a colt or a donkey or any kind of transportation. By the way, those of you that have spent much time riding those kinds of things, 90 miles isn't made any easier just because you're riding on a donkey. And so we have this, this picture of this destitute couple being forced out of their home to make this arduous journey all at the whim of an emperor who cared nothing about them. You see, Caesar was one who ignored the poor and the marginalized. Even if he was aware, even if he had been aware of the plight of Mary and Joseph and others like them who were dislodged from their homes because of Caesar's demand, even if he had been aware, the Caesars of this world care nothing about the poor and the marginalized. The poor for them are simply a problem to be solved. Now church, listen up for a moment. Because we can easily fall in to that kind of a welfare mentality even in the church. That we see poverty as a problem to be solved. And that's not the way the scriptures depict poverty. Jesus entered into poverty. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the Caesars of this world, they don't care about the poor and the marginalized. They simply ignore them and move on. What kind of man was this Caesar? We find in those days that, that Caesar was in the process, historically speaking, he was in the process of enacting what by Paul's day, the Apostle Paul's day, would be known as emperor worship. This particular Caesar was pivotal in enacting what would be known as emperor worship all over the Roman Empire. By the days of the Apostle Paul, there was a common saying that was demanded among all the regions of the Roman Empire, and it was this, Caesar is Lord. By the way, that's what got so many of the early Christians in such trouble, because what's the proclamation of the Christian faith? Jesus is Lord. And so they were standing against the cultural norm of that day. They were breaking the laws of their day when they were making proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord when everyone else was saying, no, Caesar is Lord. And we have to say that because if we don't proclaim that Caesar is Lord, we might lose our heads. And so, so many Christians lost their lives because of the simple proclamation that Jesus is Lord. You see, Caesar decreed himself both Lord and God. Just like Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, the Caesars got to a place where they began to demand that the people worship them. They, enacted, they erected statues of themselves in various major cities throughout their empires, and they would call upon the people to come and to worship them as gods. But you see, this 
king who made himself out to be a god was really only acting according to the perfect plan of the one true and living God. If you look at verse 1 there and compare it with what Proverbs 21 tells us, it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. God turns it wherever he will. Church, that ought to bring us great comfort in the day in which we live. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a little bit of political turmoil going on in our nation right now. I know that's a huge understatement. Government shutdown, border walls, arguments over whether we're going to continue with Obamacare. Every headline just speaks of massive turmoil and upheaval and it can leave us in a place where we begin to feel very insecure as the people of God even in recent days as there has been great discussion over uh, removing the tax exempt status from churches in our country something that we have enjoyed for for many years but there's been much talk of that being removed in the days to come we can become very fearful over what we read on the front page but I want to say to us today, we don't have to be fearful of what we read on the front page of the newspaper because of what we read in the pages of God's Word. We don't have to be fearful over those things. We can hear the message of those angels being spoken to us. Do not fear. Subtext, God's got this. God is ruling and reigning over our day just as he was over the days of the Caesars. And the Caesar in this particular instance was only doing exactly what God needed done. Because if you go back to Micah chapter 5 in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, Micah made very clear the Messiah is not supposed to be born in Nazareth. The Messiah has got to be born in Bethlehem. So how do you get Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem? God sees fit to turn the heart of the king of the world to call for a census. This is how powerful our God is and how worthy he is of our trust. What else do we understand about this Caesar? From history, we understand that he not only decreed himself Lord and God, he also decreed himself a Savior by defeating his people. So he would go into a new city and overtake that city and, and erect a statue of himself. And he would call people not only to worship him as Lord and God, but he would proclaim himself their Savior. I saved you from your heathenism. I saved you from your lack of education and from your poverty and your lack of, of Romanism. They, they were so much about enacting and inflicting Roman culture upon all the other nations that they went to. And, and we find so much today, so much today, there is so much more of a, a Roman-type culture even emerging here in America. He declared himself a savior, but did so by defeating his people this caesar demanded praise by his show of hubris pride was exalted in roman culture much like it is today we are falling more and more into the patterns of the roman culture that went before us a day in which humility is looked down upon and pride is exalted as a virtue to be achieved 
Make a name for yourself, our culture says. Caesar was all about that. He was all about wanting to leave his mark on the pages of history that everyone would know who he is, how great he was, and that he was deserving of the worship that he demanded. It was all driven by pride. If you look at the culture around us, you see that same kind of a picture is emerging more and more. Jesus, as his disciples were arguing over their own greatness, Jesus called his disciples to himself and he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. The picture is, you know how the Gentiles do it. They want to keep you under their thumb. They want to prove their power. They want to show you how strong they are and how weak you are. That's the way that they do it, Jesus is saying. But he'll go on to say, it shouldn't be so among you. We'll come back to this passage here in just a few minutes. You see, we we understand from history that this Caesar was the one who declared a peace. He declared, there's no more war. The Pax Romana is here. The Roman peace has come. Wars are ended he said, but he decreed this peace by simply beating his enemies into submission. It was a Hitler type of peace. He declared this kind of peace by crushing anyone who stood in his way. And again, church, this mentality is alive and well today. There's no, if you can't beat them, join them. If you can't beat them, crush them. And that's the picture that we see so often in the rulers of this world. Domination. And destruction follows in their path as they are intent on exalting themselves and demeaning anyone who would stand in their way. But then we see Luke lay out for us a very different picture. In the second portion of our text today, look at verse 8. And Luke begins to lay out for us something radically different. A A very different kind of king emerges. And the declaration of the eternal king is this. Come and be redeemed. Not go and be registered Not do as I say or I'll crush you into the dirt. But the eternal king, the God over the universe, calling out to his people saying, Come, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Saying to them, Come and be redeemed, come and be saved. Is the call of the eternal king. Let's learn some things about our king again today. First of all, look at verse 7 and we see that Christ identified with the poor and the marginalized. He did not ignore the poor and the marginalized. He identified with them. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Now, I know how quick we are to romanticize this picture in our minds. Let me read to you what this means. This teenage girl who was with child 
gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in rags and laid him in a feeding trough because no one would give them a room. So let's take all of our romanticized pictures of that first Christmas night and let's throw them out the window and just grasp the gravity of what God was putting on display. That the king of the universe not only stepped off the throne of heaven, but he stepped into the lowliest place that he could possibly take. It would have been an enormous step down for him to have left the throne of heaven and to step in as a king in a castle. But instead he came as a baby wrapped in rags and laid in a feeding trough because no one would give them a room in an inn that would have looked shabbier than any of the worst motels we've ever seen. Christ chose to identify with the poor and the marginalized. And by the way, church, the call upon our lives is to do the same. If you can read the word of God without seeing God's heart for the poor, you haven't been reading very much. From beginning to end, this is a God who loves the poor. So much so that he became poor. He took on poverty, 2 Corinthians 8 says, so that through his poverty we might become rich. And Christ didn't have to declare himself Lord and God as Caesar did. Instead, Christ was declared to be Lord by God himself. While for Caesar it was a self-proclamation, worship me as Lord and God, Caesar demanded. Instead, Christ was declared to be Lord by God himself, by the eternal God. His Father declared him to be so. And so as the, as the early church is going out in Acts chapter 2, and they're proclaiming the gospel message for the first time, as Peter is preaching and laying out for them the story of Jesus, he comes to this point in verse 36, and he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He says, you remember that guy that died on the cross here just a few days back? Just a few weeks ago? And you were calling for his crucifixion? God the Father has made him both Lord and Christ. And so you've got Caesar on his throne proclaiming, I am Lord and God. And then you have the eternal God who is proclaiming over the life of his son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He is Lord and Christ, God in the flesh who came to dwell among us. Not only that, but Christ was declared our Savior, not by defeating his enemies, but by dying for them. Look at verse 11. This is the only time in Scripture when these three terms for Christ come together as one. For unto you, the angel says, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We find Jesus called Savior all, in many places in, in, in the Scriptures. We find Jesus called Christ in many places in the Scriptures. We even see him called Lord in many places in the Scriptures. This is the only place that we find all three titles coming together as one. As the messengers of God, these holy angels from heaven, speak out who this baby is. 
He is your Savior. He is your Lord. And He is Christ, the anointed and promised one. The fulfillment of all the promises of God is found in Him. And He became our Savior by dying for our sins. Christmas ought to be a regular reminder to us of Easter. I'm not trying to fast forward us through this holiday just to get to the next one. I'm just saying this holiday points us to the one that is to come. It points us to Easter and reminds us he was born into the world, not just to give us a Christmas story, but to die on the cross for our sins. So that he becomes our Savior and does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And therefore, Christ deserved praise, not by his show of hubris, but by his show of humility. Again, for the Romans... And even for the culture in which we live, humility is not considered to be worth much. Make a name for yourself. Get your 15 minutes of fame and stretch them out as long as you can. Make all the money you can. Buy all the toys you can. Make sure people know who you are. And Jesus came in obscurity. The only ones that showed up to welcome him on the night of his birth were a grubby band of shepherds. And again, we romanticize shepherds. We romanticize the shepherds and we forget that in terms of social classes in first century Judea, the shepherds were the lowest ladder except for the lepers. You had the lepers who were the lowest, the, the, these who had the disease of leprosy were the lowest rung of Judean society and just barely above them were the shepherds. The shepherds were so despised. They were all considered to be liars and thieves. They were so despised in Jesus' day that they could not worship in the temple. They were considered unclean. They could not come and worship in the temple, even though these shepherds were likely keeping watch over the very flocks that provided the temple sacrifices. They were caring for the sheep that would be used in worship to God in that sacrificial system, and yet they themselves could not enter into the temple because they were considered unclean. Even more so, they were considered so untrustworthy that they were not allowed to testify in the courts of that day. The witness of a shepherd would not be considered any kind of evidence. So if you've wondered... Well, how come the whole city of Bethlehem and Jerusalem and the outlying areas didn't become abuzz with what the shepherds were telling everyone as they left this scene and went to tell everyone what they had seen and heard? It's because nobody believed them. Nobody listened to the shepherds in those days. And so why in the world does God in all of his infinite wisdom pull back the veil of heaven with the multitude, the army of heaven shows up in full force to make this proclamation to a little band of grubby shepherds that no one is going to listen to in the first place. What makes absolutely no sense to us is the very wisdom of God. This is the way that God does what he does. And so Jesus, going back to Mark chapter 10, he said, you know how the Gentiles do it. They lord it over their authority, over those that are their subjects, but it must not be, it shall not be so among you, he says. 
Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that was Jesus' favorite designation of himself. He loved to take the title Son of Man, which, which in and of itself was a term of humility. He could have owned the term Son of God and had every right to, but instead he more often called himself the Son of Man. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then we come to the end this morning. The proclamation of the army of heaven praising God and saying, look at verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. By the way, that's where all of our praises ought to begin. Our praises ought to begin in this vertical place. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And that vertical praise ought to result in horizontal proclamation. Not just to one another, but to those outside of this fellowship who, who do not yet know Christ. We ought to mimic these shepherds who came and saw the glory of God in the baby in the manger. And then they went dumbfounded and told everyone else what they'd seen and heard. Even though no one would listen to them. So much so that this story remained in obscurity. Until many years later, Luke would sit down with Mary and get the lowdown on what happened that first Christmas night so that he could write this for our instruction. We end this morning with this word of peace. On earth, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Again, Caesar declared peace, the Pax Romana, the absence of war, and yet the absence of war isn't real peace. There's more to it than that. You see, when the real king declares peace, he does it not by beating his enemies into submission, but rather by bringing his enemies to salvation. And church, this is where our rejoicing abounds, right in this space. This same Jesus who was born in the manger many years later would say, greater love hath no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And yet, the book of Ephesians reminds us that while we were yet enemies of God, He died for us. While we were still living in open rebellion against Him, the King of glory stepped off of His throne, not just to live a perfect and sinful life, though He accomplished that to the T, but He also died in our place on a cross that should have been ours. He took all of our sin upon himself, though he had no sin of his own. He paid our penalty so that we could be fully and completely redeemed. And Luke's favorite designation of this is he thinks about the salvation that Jesus came to bring. Luke's favorite way of speaking about this is that God came to bring peace to man. From the very beginning, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so Christ declared peace by bringing his enemies to salvation. As we close this morning with Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul would later write a man who knew what it meant to be an enemy of God, who came to peace with God through Jesus Christ. He said, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let me just say three things to you as we close this morning. First of all, the most important peace in your life is peace with God. You may not have peace with your neighbor, your co-worker. You may not even have peace in your home. But if you have peace with God, you have everything that you need. And that peace with God, that vertical relationship with God, will in time begin to restore some of those horizontal relationships. But you can have a sense of peace in other areas. You can be at peace in your home and in your workplace, even when you come to church on Sunday morning. But if you don't have peace with God through Jesus Christ, then all of those other types of peace are the kind of peace that only Caesar is going to bring to you. Christ wants to bring you a deeper, a lasting peace, a peace that will outlast this life. He wants to reconcile you with the one true and living God where you understand fully and and clearly that all glory belongs to him that his ways are not your ways and his thoughts are not your thoughts he is so radically different from us and yet he beckons us to draw near to him we have obtained access to him by our faith in Jesus Christ and for this reason we have great purpose in rejoicing we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and that's what Christmas is all about we rejoice in the fact that God saw fit to bring us hope through a baby wrapped in rags and placed in a feeding trough. And by the way, he would go yet lower still. He would live the first 30 years of his life in relative obscurity. We only have one story from the age of 12 that still exists from those days, is at the end of Luke chapter 2. Even as he went out and began his public ministry, he was the minister who drew a great crowd and then just as quickly they were dispersed and followed him no more. He was left with just the 12 that he started with. That wouldn't have been considered a successful ministry, folks. If you start with a church of 12 and it grows to thousands and within a day's time it's back to 12, not many are going to want to follow you as a pastor. And yet he was the greatest of all shepherds. Because he would go even lower. And when even those 12 turned away from him, he laid his life down on the cross sacrificing himself that we might be redeemed, paying our penalty that we might have peace with God. And so as, we've sharing, as we continue to share his story together during these days, we're sharing his story because his story is the most important of all stories. And your story will only find meaning when you recognize that you are a chapter in his book. And rightly so.